The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson. I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University, and I'm joined once again by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who's the Dean of the Grazadio School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Thanks so much, Rick. It's good to be with you. Well, it's hard to believe we're at the end of this series. It has been just another marvelous uh, series for the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. It has been a wonderful year. We've had seven amazing speakers, and today we conclude with Elizabeth Lowry, who is Vice President of Energy Environment and Safety Policy for General Motors. And it's a really timely topic because there is so much interest in social responsibility and environmental issues. And so she really comes to that from an interesting perspective out of the automobile world. Yes, certainly. And General Motors is is certainly in the news. So we look forward to this uh, interview and we invite our listeners to sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with Elizabeth Lowry, Vice President, Environment, Energy and Safety Policy for General Motors. Welcome to our final Dean's Executive Leadership Podcast for the year, and today we are very pleased to have with us Beth Lowry, who is Vice President at General Motors, and her responsibilities include their environmental activities as well as some of their safety activities. So, Beth, uh, it's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here on such a beautiful campus. Uh, just arrived a few minutes ago, and it's uh, I can't wait to get out and see everything. A little different view than from Michigan, but yes. <laughs> uh, we're certainly glad to have you with us. You might begin, I always like for our listeners to know a little bit about kind of the, what I call the leadership story of um, our guests. So talk a little bit about kind of the journey you took to get where you are today at General Motors. It's obviously a little unusual to have women in as high a level position at an auto company as you have. And I know you've been recognized in several different ways for being one of the top women in the auto industry. So talk about how you got to that point, And then we'll talk more about what's going on at GM now. Sure. I'd like to tell everybody that there was some planned uh, path that I knew all along the way exactly where I was going to go, but um, that's not exactly the case. A lot of it was opportunities that came up. Um, Certainly, um, I have an undergrad in business and a law degree Mm -hmm. and started an environmental practice. So uh, I got the background uh, in a private law firm and then joined General Motors and actively got involved in policy and legislation and regulations, even on the legal staff. Um, And then through the years, just kept, you know, with it and certainly got to know a lot of the people within the corporation, which I think is very important Mm -hmm. to make sure there's networking going on, that you really understand how the company works. Um, And then also had opportunities um, every few years to manage different kinds of people, whether it's attorneys or eventually with the people I have now, which are scientists and engineers and uh, public policy folks. So it really has been a very exciting journey, certainly challenging right now. uh, But in environments like this, it really does test your leadership skills. And I think Uh, having a positive outlook on things really helps. Let's talk a little bit about your role in the context of all that General Motors is dealing with today. And for our listeners, the day that we're doing this, I think your stock's at a dollar seventy something today. It's a it's a challenging time, and um, and clearly we read about it every day in the paper as the auto industry goes through this. But you are obviously also on the environmental side and really trying to help develop some new products, new ways of thinking. So talk about your role in the context of all the challenges GM faces 
faces right now and how you see your role in helping GM get through what's going on right now. Sure. Um, It certainly is a very difficult, challenging time for us um, in the auto industry as a whole um, on a global basis, but GM in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, But in that challenging time, certainly there are plenty of opportunities. And as we reinvent General Motors, we're reinventing the automobile and really looking at the environmental energy aspects of our business overall. Uh, We've been doing that for some time, but certainly when you're in a crisis situation, you really have to really focus in on what's important for the company. And certainly customer and products is key to the success, Uh, getting our balance sheet and our financials right, uh, making sure we are doing all of the right things uh, for a stronger company. But also we're creating a greener future. So obviously being in a position that I'm in right now, it's a very exciting time to make sure that everything we do um, is focused on making sure we're part of the solution. So whether it's a sustainability and work we do in our facilities, whether it's bringing out the Chevy Volt, which has stayed on track uh, for coming out in late 2010, which is an extended range electric vehicle really going to change and reinvent the automobile. So being very focused on those things that are going to make a difference in the environmental energy equation. I know one of the things you see in in, in our culture here, particularly in the United States, it's certainly maybe different in other places around the world. But when gas prices go up, you know, everybody gets all excited about energy-efficient automobiles and starts buying them. And then we see those prices go down as oil prices drop. And the market then tends to shift some for automobiles. So so we're a bit fickle about our environmental focus as drivers of automobiles. And we certainly love our large automobiles in this country. How do you... How do you build a uh, an interest, a sustainable interest in environmentally friendly automobiles that sort of lives through whatever happens to gas prices and oil prices? Well, I think there's a combination of things. One, we've learned a lot about um, the advanced technology in, in electric vehicles, things like that, which is it's very important that we look at style and design and performance associated with the vehicle in addition to the environmental qualities. So people that look for uh, advanced technology certainly want to make sure that they're you know, in a very cool car, that they really love how it looks from the outside, that it's going to give them all the performance and functionality of any vehicle they've had in the past. So I think it's very important to pay attention to the detail, making sure it's high quality and that it's, you know, meeting all those factors for our customers. So we really need to do that. The other thing we need to do, and we're working on it, is working with the administration on a national energy policy, working on global climate, cap and trade issues, so we have a price on carbon. So as a nation, we have some constancy of purpose with respect to are we serious about these issues or not? And certainly working on things such as biofuels and getting alternatives to petroleum is also very important. So we have a lot of things in the mix in addition to building, you know, the great cars and trucks. Sure. Very complicated mix because you you are building the cars and trucks, but then there's also the other side of it where the fuel, where does it come from? So you build the cars, but if there's not a fuel source for those outside of what you're doing, it makes it difficult for the consumer. So what role does government play? What role does kind of the whole public policy process play in creating an environment that is conducive to thinking differently about the kinds of automobiles that we drive. Well, as you can imagine, government plays a very big role at this point in our lives. <laughs> Much more now than we used to think it would in this um, case. Yes, absolutely. But um, what's important is looking at it as a system. So looking at what we can do as an automaker on the technologies in the cars and trucks, uh, looking at the fuels, and so making sure there's alternative fuels out there, whether it's biofuels from cellulose or um, looking at uh, CNG and all these various fuels that are important, not just in the U.S., but on a global basis, but also understanding 
winning customers, too. So we really do have to make sure that we're working all the various stakeholders. So, for example, if we have on the road 3.5 million flex fuel vehicles that we have on the road today, we would like to be able to have E85 ethanol in local stations so people can fuel those vehicles mm-hmm. with the right fuel. And that requires infrastructure development, so that requires working with federal, state, and local governments, in addition to working with the energy companies. So it really is a collaborative partnership effort to really make sure that we get this right and that we have some um, focus so that we're not changing every Mm -hmm. year what we're doing. And so it is very important for us to stay focused on what we can control. What is the, and and I ask this because I want to talk a little bit about the Volt that you guys are working on. What is kind of the the timeline for the development of a new, a completely new type of automobile like this from sort of inception of the idea to actually bringing it to market, which gets at what you were just saying, that you have to have confidence that then over that long time frame, when you take it to market, the fuel's going to be there, the infrastructure's going to be there to support it. But what kind of window are we talking about for, say, the Volt from its inception? I know that there's, a, I believe, a hydrogen cell car that's sort of longer down the lines that there's some research being done on. But what kind of window are we looking at where you have to sort of have confidence that the market will be there and the infrastructure will be there? Well, it varies uh, depending on what you're working on. Certainly, the Volt is probably the fastest program we've ever done. Um, the Chevy Volt is due to come out in late 2010, and that's been... Pu- probably about two and a half, three years. Um, it can be four to five years, depending on what the product is. Um, but then again, as you say, you start with a concept and a design, and you have auto shows where you get a sense of what people like about it, and then you go through the research and development. The difference with the Chevy Volt is that you're designing the battery at the same time you're designing the product, and that's very unusual for mm-hmm. us. Usually you would have you know, the internal combustion engine, everything already ready, and right. you're just putting it into a new design, uh, maybe a new body style, that kind of thing. So that's a really challenging program, but certainly very focused because we know how important it is for the whole reinvention of the automobile and also of the company. Um, so again, it varies depending on um, what vehicle you're working on. It's also important, though, we have the conversations about infrastructure, whether it's biofuels or it's the electric grid mm-hmm. and greening the grid, working on all those activities. So while we're producing the vehicle and our designers and engineers are working very hard on that, we, uh, public policy and a bunch of other folks are really working with the collaborative stakeholders to try to make sure that we're getting the electric grid ready for the plug-in type vehicles. So talk a little bit more particularly about the Volt and what that innovation is. I, I know many people have probably read about it, but I'm not sure all of our listeners will know exactly what that technology is and how it will work differently than uh, maybe electric cars that yeah. we've seen in the past. Hopefully uh, people have heard about the Chevy <laughs> I hope so. There's been a lot of news about it, so <laughs> it I'd is. be surprised. Yeah. Um, but the Chevy Volt can go 40 miles uh, without ever using a drop of gasoline. So it is in a pure electric stage. Um, and it's very important because you also have an internal combustion engine, can run on flex fuels, or you can, can be a fuel cells that creates more electricity on board. So you can go further than 40 miles if you don't have an opportunity to plug in at the end of that commute. Um, about 75% of the American public has a commute that's 40 miles or less uh, every day. So we believe that people will really be able to use the boat without using any gasoline, which mm-hmm. is very, very exciting proposition. So we've had a lot of interest in it. Again, very exciting technology, but also a beautiful vehicle. So that really helps to draw some interest uh, to the Volt. 
So you've got the energy efficiency and the style to go along with it. So hopefully it'll be a big, big hit. Yes. We talked some about the role of government, and we were talking about it in the context of helping create the right environment for these energy efficient cars. But obviously, given what GM is going through, the government has been very actively involved in uh, some of the decisions that have been made there. Uh, From your perspective as a senior executive at GM, you know, how has that played out? And what is it? What has been the experience from kind of a leadership perspective of working in that kind of an environment where you're probably seeing much more government intervention than anybody would have probably ever expected, given the nature of the auto industry? Well, with respect to my role, a lot of the work in public policy is working with government, right. so it's not. You're that, more used to it, yes, probably, than I'm other more used to the, the company <laughs> than some of the engineers and scientists and others. But um, certainly, what's important is to make sure that we have good dialogue, and uh, we are very transparent with respect to our viability plans. So we've laid out everything we're doing with respect to our brands and our products and what we're doing with the bondholders and with our UAW and our salary workforce. So we basically have laid all that out. Um, But the Auto Task Force um, has been very, very good to work with. They've spent a lot of time in Detroit. Um, We've gone to Washington as well. But they really have tried to understand our business. It's a very, very complicated business, all the way from the dealer structure to the union structure to the way we build car and trucks and the intense investment that's required. Again, as we talked about long lead times, all the various technologies. Um, So they really have spent a lot of time learning about the business, learning about the business model that right now isn't working very well on a global basis for many, many auto companies, um, and things that really do have to change. Um, And I think that the administration, Obama administration, has worked very hard with us to understand all of those those issues. Uh, Things like going to facilities, you know, seeing what we do every day to build a car and truck, um, our focus on intense quality metrics. Um, Every plant they've gone to, the same scorecard includes environmental, energy, all our quality, productivity, all measured the same way. So I think they've seen a lot of great work that's behind the scenes that you don't necessarily see in all the headlines. I was reading an article um, earlier this week, and it was speaking to the fact that uh, depending on how all of this plays out for GM and seeing what's going on with Chrysler, that at the end of the day, we may end up with very few, if any, sort of Net, you know, worldwide uh, producers of all different types of cars that it will, we may end up with more sort of specialty niche producers that may be more regional in nature and less sort of international in nature. What's your take on that? I mean, what do you see if you sort of had a crystal ball and look five, 10 years down the road with the auto industry uh, from an international perspective, sort of beyond what's happening to GM right now, where do you see that going and how do you see that industry uh, coming through this in the longer run? Well, certainly a lot of restructuring going on now. So um, globalization is something people are very, very interested in. But now it looks very much like people are getting into the local markets and the regions. And we, in the past, have had some really good synergies on globalization. So we could share products, um, some of the facility um, work that we've done, engineering, so that you can have the best in all worlds. You can work 24 hours if you have these virtual centers, things like that. Um, But that's very hard to do at this point in time because of the government funding coming from various countries. So what's important is that we look at where the synergies are, where it makes sense, um, but we will mostly be building product where we sell that product. And I think that the um, companies will shake out in that way. Um, Obviously, very much focused on developing markets as well. I mean, there's a lot of people that still don't have the pleasure of personal mobility that are very interested in it. Um, The auto industry does 
bring very, very good jobs. It really does develop an economy. Uh, so I think we'll continue to see that all around uh, the world where people are interested in personal transportation, along with figuring out you know, where it makes sense to have other mobility um, options. Now, one of the modes of transportation we're going with Segway. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that, because in my mind, as you talk about developing countries and personal transportation, yeah. it, I, I don't know if that's sort of connected there for me, what that what you're thinking about in that line and how that might revolutionize transportation. Yes, actually, that was very much the connection. <laughs> Segway and General Motors came together and, and worked on a personal, it was called Puma, a personal urban mobility uh, vehicle. And basically, it was to figure out how you could be, give people the ability to be transported in a, a small two-seater using the concept of Segway. Um, and we introduced it at the New York Auto Show just to get a feel for what it would look like um, and to really get people's mindset around um, that it doesn't always have to be the vehicles we know in North America. I mean, as you go around the world, as you know, with all of the, the people and the congestion, there has to be some new systems that are developed. But people do like the ability to get around um, from a personal standpoint as well. So the Puma project was really to see how that would work out. Um, I think you'll you know, see much more about that and see how it works around the world. Let's step back and talk a little bit about some of these issues from a leadership perspective. Early in your remarks, you commented on sort of managing and leading in a crisis situation. Uh, What have you learned from a leadership perspective from being a part of what GM is going through and how you help manage an organization through what is probably one of the most significant crises Mm -hmm. we've seen an American company, especially one as large as GM, have to go through? What lessons come out of that for you as a leader? I think the most important thing is to be very realistic. I mean, you really have to understand where you are, what the situation is. So I think that's been very helpful. Um, the positive attitude is very important. Um, we really have to make sure that, you know, our troops are focused on what they control and they really are doing their jobs every day. Um, obviously, a lot of fear whether people will have their jobs and, you know, what what the company will look like, but also really giving people the idea of, you know, you really have to restructure and then you have to reinvent, and so you have to be ready to change. And so getting people comfortable for, with change um, is also very important. And then also just really focused on results. I mean, we really need to make sure we're making the right decisions, that people are, are taking risks, um, making decisions quickly. I think the, the most important lesson we've learned through all this is that there really has to be a sense of, of speed and mm-hmm. making sure that you're going as fast as you can and you make the decisions. And certainly in that context, you may make some mistakes, uh, but it really is challenging to uh, not make those decisions. And then there is no time here. Um, so you really do have to make the critical decisions fast. In, in many ways, you're talking about bringing about a significant cultural change within mm-hmm. an organization that has a lot of sort of legacy issues within the context of what you do. How do you bring about that change? And you don't have years to do it. You're being asked to do it within months or weeks to some extent compared to what organizations usually think about to bring about that significant of a change in how you do business, how quickly you change, uh, the flexibility that you have. Anything you've learned in this process that helps you know better how to manage that change, how you work with the, uh, the people in the organization to bring about that cultural shift? 
Well, I've been at General Motors almost 20 years Uh and been through a lot of the processes of cultural change Mm -hmm. and looking at how we could do things differently. And I think one of the things that's important is that we talked about a lot of things that we had to do, um, but until we got into a crisis, did we do those? So whether it's uh, restrictions on franchise laws for dealers or, you know, the issues with unions and contracts or some of the restrictions we thought we were always bound by, um, there are ways to work through those. Um, and that means that you have to make those decisions and really try to do that. Now, I think the, the cultural change, generally what we do is you get everybody in a room and you try to get everybody to buy in, um, which is a very nice thing to do when you have the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you really don't. So in a crisis, you really have to decide this is the way it's going to be and communicate, communicate, communicate. I mean, it's very important. As I mentioned earlier, we're very transparent on everything we're doing. We're also trying to be very transparent with our employees so they know what's happening every step of the way. Now, that's always challenging because sometimes the media has things before we <laughs> right. have them or they make decisions for us somehow. Right. But um, just really trying to be open and make sure that people understand that we are doing the best we can to make the right decisions mm-hmm. so that GM will be successful in the long run. One of the other significant transitions happening at GM right now is with regard to your board of directors. And uh, I guess there's going to be a shit transition of about half of the people on the board. And I think I read this morning that um, with some encouragement by the government, you're going to work with Spencer Stewart to have that happen. Um, and so talk a little bit, and I don't know how close you are to that particular situation, but uh, what, how, how does that kind of a shift in the board impact an organization going through what you're going through? And I know if, if you end up having to go through bankruptcy, it won't be till after that's all played out that the new board would come on board. But it's a very significant shift in a board in a very short period of time. And how is that playing out in terms of the the leadership and how you sort of manage through that from a top leadership perspective? Well, I read that in the paper today, too. Yeah, well, we probably read the story. same article in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, yes, I did, on the plane, actually. Um, but I am Secretary of the Public Policy Committee of the right. board, so I am familiar with what the board activities are. Um, certainly, Kent Cressa, who's mm-hmm. our new chairman, has been asked to look at what should the board look like. Mm-hmm. And so he's working through that. So I'm not as close to, you know, what he's doing. Um, Certainly what we talked about is when we are reinventing the company, it'll be a very different company with Mm -hmm. the role of government, with the role of the uh, VIVA, the Voluntary Benefit Program with the UAW, um, change in shareholders. So it would be natural that there would be a change um, in the board members. Um, But you're right. I mean, that will be a challenge. But we've had new members come on the board. We've had some rotate off. Um, That's a lot all at once. Um, But right now, everything is new. (laughs) Every Everything we're doing is different. Doesn't feel any different. Never been done before, right? I just think it's one of those things that as we put a new company together, we'll have a new board, and you know, people will work through that just like they're working through all the other challenges we have. As you look at GM, I sort of ask you to think ahead five or ten years with the auto industry more generally. But as you look at GM and what you're going through, um, what do you think GM will look like in five years or ten years? Let's assume it's going to be there, uh, and we all hope it is because it's such a you know, such a a wonderful company in the history of this country. what do you think it would look like different than what it does now in five to 10 years? Well, I think GM will be around. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it will be, as we talk about, leaner, greener, stronger. Uh, so it will be very different because we'll have four brands that we've been talking about. So I think Chevy and Cadillac, um, Buick and GMC is what you'll see from a brand standpoint. It's amazing. Probably many of our listeners don't even know all the various brands that are under GM. You know, we're so close to it. We 
assume everybody right. knows everything. But um, so it will be smaller. I think there will be very much a focus on advanced technology and green, which obviously is music to my mm-hmm. ears. Um, and there really will be um, a company that provides still very, very good jobs, major contributor, obviously, to the U.S. economy and economies around the world, um, and will continue to really provide people personal transportation that they love. I think you'll continue to see great designs. We've made tremendous uh, progress in our products um, from a quality standpoint, design, technology. And I think that's a little frustrating for all the folks that are working so hard on that, that we probably have the best products, Mm -hmm. best cars and trucks we've ever had at General Motors. Uh, But the global meltdown certainly came at a, a difficult time for us. So. We are primarily a graduate school of business and produce a lot of MBAs each year. Uh, Obviously, there has been a bias among MBAs uh, over the past years. I think that's changing now to do financial services, consulting, that sort of thing, and and kind of a bias against some of the more traditional industries, manufacturing industries. Um, Obviously, with all the changes that are going on in the economy, I think our MBAs are thinking more broadly about their careers. But what advice might you give students graduating either from a full-time or executive MBA program of some type in terms of thinking about the opportunities that there might be out there, maybe different than they've thought about them in the past? I actually would look at everything very differently now. I mean, as we go through this difficult and challenging time, uh, there's so many opportunities out there. I mean, certainly there's a lot of opportunities in the whole advanced technology, renewable fuels, all the energy work that's going on, the whole creation of green jobs. Um, I think for MBAs, really helping some of these startups and also looking at companies like General Motors, which will be totally different um, when the graduates come out. And really, I think, just expand the mind and not think about just when you think about Detroit, you think of old Mm -hmm. school. I mean, certainly there's more technology than in our vehicles than in many, many other products. Um, And it's a very, very fun uh, business. used to be fun. I'm not so sure. (laughs) Uh, There are moments now it probably doesn't feel as fun as it used to. (laughs) It's still, you know, it's very exciting. Um, And certainly there's some great people in the industry. And it has a ripple effect, whether it's with suppliers, dealers, all the work you do do with government and, you know, tremendous um, impact you have on on people's lives. Clearly, going through the time that you are now at GM, and there are many companies in the country dealing and around the world dealing with similar kinds of issues uh, in and outside of the auto industry. I want to tie it back to kind of a focus we have in the business school. Our, in our mission statement, we talk about developing values-centered leaders and advancing responsible business practice. So what values do you sort of fall back on at a time like this as a leader to help you sort of get through it and ground yourself uh, so that you stay focused on the right things? Well, that's a very good question. And certainly through the years at General Motors, I've had a wonderful opportunity to work um, and go on programs such as Leadership at the Peak in Colorado and all various executive um, programs that focus on values. So what's important, uh, certainly as a company, uh, integrity is very important to what we're doing. And so everything and every day, we want to make sure we have the highest integrity in what we do. Um, certainly my values, um, focusing on family, a family that keeps me very grounded, <laughs> um, do not let me forget where I came from, what I'm Children will do that to you. (laughs) Absolutely. And making sure that, you know, you really focus on the fact that all the decisions you're making are impacting a lot of lives. And so we have to make sure we're making the right decisions and we're focused on the right things and being uh, part of the solution. 
Wonderful. Well, Beth, it has been such a pleasure having you with us, and we certainly wish you and General Motors great success in the weeks and months ahead through the challenges that are there. And we, we look forward to seeing what comes out on the other side and, and hope okay. that it's a, a, something interesting and new and uh, something that will really show us how a company can transform itself in a significant way. Thank you very much. Well, Linda, as promised, that was a terrific interview. It was really interesting to listen to Elizabeth and understand what's going on with regard to the environment and energy, both at GM and in the automobile industry. Yes, certainly. Well, it was a terrific way of ending this season of the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. It has been a great year with wonderful leaders from a variety of industries and great companies, and so we look forward to another wonderful series next year. Well, it certainly is a great resource both for uh, your students and as well as for those who uh, visit us on our uh, website. For those who are interested, uh, let me invite you to subscribe to these podcasts by going to bschool.pepperdine.edu slash Dells, that's D-E-L-S, or you can visit us on our YouTube channel or in iTunes. Until next time, thank you for listening. Why is Pepperdine University's Grazio Dio School of Business and Management considered the smart way for working professionals to earn an MBA? Well, first and foremost, Forbes magazine ranks Pepperdine's fully employed MBA program among the top 20 business schools for return on investment. So financially, it's very smart. And Pepperdine's program is built around real-world curriculum, not just theory, so students can apply what they learn in class at the workplace the next day. So now, does earning an MBA from one of the most highly regarded business schools in the world sound like a smart move to you? Then call 1-800-933-3333 for more information. That's 1-800-933-3333. Pepperdine University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management. The smart business decision. And Pepperdine also offers a top-ranked executive MBA program.